Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Catholic Lives. This is episode 10, Captive, Convert, and Mother Superior in Colonial America. This episode concerns the fascinating life story of Esther Wheelwright who was born in Wells, Massachusetts in 1696 to a Puritan family uh, in what today would be southern Maine, because the English colony of Massachusetts once included uh, Maine in its, uh, in its territory. Um, she was, Esther Wheelwright, the fourth of seven children to her parents, John and Mary Wheelwright, who were devout Puritans. And so I don't know, I, I probably should explain this, if you don't know what Puritans, who Puritans are, or vaguely understand this, Puritans were people who um, were actually in, from, from England. And if you don't know, the Reformation in England broke away from the Catholic Church, but didn't necessarily break with all the sort of external um, external things associated with Catholicism. They still had bishops. Um, they still had some ceremonies that looked kind of like um, Catholicism in some ways. And the really intense, mostly Calvinist uh, members of the Church of England who wanted to purge uh, the remaining Catholic elements from the Church of England uh, became to be called Puritans. And in fact, they never got their way. And in fact, some of them left England to go found uh, Colony of America in 1630, Massachusetts Bay Colony, uh, because they wanted to found this you know, truly reformed Protestant church in New England. And um, being Puritans, their their main authority was scripture. Um, the um, Puritans, like the Wheelwrights, would have kept the Sabbath very, very strict way, would have done no work on Sundays or anything like this. Uh, in fact, on Saturday nights, John Wheelwright would um, lead his family in prayer. And next morning, the entire family would walk in procession to the local meeting house uh, for an all-day service on Sundays. And um, one of the things notable about these uh, Protestants are sometimes called Congregationalists uh, because they had a, co had a congregational form of church government in which uh, members of each local church elected ministers and other officers. So it's part and parcel of this new culture. Now, where she lived in southern, uh, today southern Maine, essentially, uh, Wells, Massachusetts, Wells, the town of Wells, was kind of a borderland town. It was on the border with, uh, to the north of it, what would be called New France at the time, the French colony there. Uh, and it was recognized as a sort of separate territory away from the rest of the colony of Massachusetts. Most of the people who came there were not devout, were not especially wealthy. They came there to make money, uh, to fish, make money from fishing, stuff like this. Uh, some of them were outcasts. Her grandfather had actually been expelled from Massachusetts <laughs> uh, before he came to Wells. Um, nonetheless, both her uh, great-grandfather uh, and her grandfather, uh, great-grandfather was a, a minister, John Wheelwright, her grandfather, uh, Samuel Wheelwright, was a judge, uh, as was her father, was also prominent in the town. Um, and she was baptized, was Esther, in 1701, the local Congregationalist Church, um, Father John Wheelwright acted as a local justice of the peace in uh, in Wells, so her family was prominent in the small little uh, outlying town in the colony. 
And in fact, um, John Wheelwright was also an entrepreneur, entrepreneur in some ways. Uh, he ran a tavern, uh, which kept borders um, uh, in, uh, in Wells. And his tavern was a popular meeting place for colonial dignitary types traveling through the, the town, governors, stuff like this. I was actually on the governor's council uh, for a brief period. Um, but he was also responsible for maintaining a garrison in the town. And by garrison, I don't mean he was a military man. Um, the way the, uh, the, uh, that word is used in colonial New England meant he maintained essentially a private residence that had, you know, borders, that had fences, that had some, that had some um, uh, defenses in time of attack. Because it was, we'll get to it in a moment, on the border. Um, and one other thing to note about the garrison uh, home, they had seven children. The household would have also included servants and slaves. Uh, Esther's grandfather, Samuel, had owned slaves in the 1690s. Both her mother and father continued to uh, own uh, African-American slaves in the 1740s and 50s, which they in turn bequeathed to family members. Um, slavery was actually fairly ubiquitous in early colonial New England. It dies out with the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in the late 18th century, but would have been part of uh, her life there. And that life would have been something of um, kind of... Um, Tense to a certain degree. The area in which they lived around Wells was populated, populated mostly by Native Americans, in particular the Wabanaki Indians, which were made up of five distinct tribes in the area. Um, there were also some French Jesuit missions in the area, but no French settlers. And the Wabanaki were the allies of the French, which is why uh, towns like <laughs> Wells needed to have garrisons. Uh, raiding was a commonplace of life on the border between colonial Massachusetts and New France, uh, as both the French and the English, over many decades, uh, competed for dominance in the region. And this is the source of the first of her many lives, and how it begins after she's there. Uh, because when she's seven years old, on August of 1703, several hundred Wabanaki Indians and a few Canadians, a few French, uh, descend on the town of Wells and uh, nearby frontier settlements. Now, no detailed account of the raid exists, but we do know that um, one member and one member only of her family, Esther herself, was taken in the raid along with two of her cousins. Uh, and to give you an idea, by the way, how brutal these raids could be, um, the Wabanaki actually executed two of her younger brothers, who were four and one years old at the time. So this is part of that battle back and forth between um, the French with their Indian allies, the English with their Indian allies uh, in this borderland. And she was carried off by the Wabanaki to the forest between the Kennebec Ken uh, and Androscoggin rivers. Um, but that's about all we can actually tell. There's no direct evidence of what she did for the next five years of her life to the time she was 12 among the Wabanaki. Uh, historians like Anne Little, who've written a book about her, uh, think she might have been taken to an Indian village nearby on the Kennebec River. Um, the reason why is that because a couple of years later, the English colonists burnt this uh, village to the ground. Why? This Indian village was, uh, was the site of one of the French Jesuit missions, uh, and they had been targeting it for several years. The, the English colonists in New England were particularly anti-Catholic, and they saw the French Jesuits as their enemies. Nonetheless, um, it's probable that she was adopted by a Wabanaki family because of her age and her sex, perhaps as a replacement for members of the Wabanaki families uh, whom they'd lost. 
Uh, as you can imagine, a Native Americans had led a precarious life in this borderland, uh, being between these two uh, more technologically advanced um, um, peoples. Uh, they were also, of course, ravaged by diseases, as were many Native Americans. So they lost a good deal of their population in the, in the part, latter part of the 17th and early part of the 18th centuries. So it would have been something uh, common to them to take someone a captive like that, perhaps, and make them part of their family. At some point, she was likely, uh, was Esther, um, introduced to the Catholic faith by French missionaries. Um, we know at one point she was eventually rebaptized condi uh, conditionally and rechristened Marie-Joseph. Again, this is a French-speaking colony. Uh, eventually, her parents, learning about where she was, petitioned the government of Massachusetts, or asked the government of Massachusetts, Massachusetts to uh, petition the governor uh, of New France to obtain her release. In response, the governor sent a Jesuit named Father Vincent Bigot uh, to the Wabanaki to persuade her to release her, which he did. Uh, and eventually he uh, returned uh, to Quebec with her in 1708, uh, where she was received by the governor, who apparently mistook, misunderstood. He thought she was the daughter of a governor or something in Wells, and, um, and so treated her kindly there. Um, with the intention that eventually she would send, uh, he would send her back home. But uh, at that point, there was a war going on um, uh, in the, in the colonies uh, and in um, uh, and, and in Europe, and so um, he declined to send her home immediately. So she was eventually placed with uh, a convent, uh, the Ursuline Convent in Quebec. Now, a couple of things about New France. Uh, New France was established in the early part of the 17th century. Um, but it never had a really uh, high population of European settlers. Uh, it was hard to get people from France to emigrate to, um, to New France, mainly because of the climate. It was really cold. <laughs> people in France didn't like it. And in fact, a large proportion of the migrants were, in fact, members of religious orders, members of the Jesuits, uh, lots of different ones, who uh, provided the backbone in some ways for a lot of services in, uh, in New France, especially nuns. Uh, they were important for services they provided, such as nursing and education, which were crucial for the growth of the colony. The Ursulines uh, were established in Quebec um, by Saint-Marie de l'Incarnation, who was a saint of the Counter-Reformation era in the 1640s. And the Ursuline order was a, a Catholic Reformation order. It had been founded before the Reformation, a little bit that. Um, but it became a, an order noted for education. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and so this became its mission. And in Quebec, um, the Ursulines established the first schools in the New World dedicated to educating young women. Uh, they will also contribute uh, to missionary efforts um, by teaching Native girls as well. In fact, I believe they'll be the only schools uh, dedicated to young women in North America, I think, until the end, until the American, after the American Revolution, I'm pretty sure. Um, can't get the dates right, but for a long time, they're the only ones. Um, so, um, after 18 months um, staying in um, the Ursuline convent, she asked to be received uh, as a nun. And Father Bigot uh, offered to pay the expenses of her entry with money sent from France. The French order you know, sent money to the uh, uh, Ursulines in Quebec. And the Ursulines agreed uh, to accept her. However, um, the governor of New France objected. Uh, again, he felt obligated to return her to her family. 
So he took her away from the convent in 1710, and she spent the next winter uh, in his residence in Quebec. Uh, in June of 1711, after receiving more messages from Massachusetts to uh, asking her to be released, um, he eventually went on to Montreal, um, intending to send her home, but partly because of uh, further difficulties he encountered, partly because of her resistance, apparently, uh, he was unable to do this. Uh, and while she was there in Montreal, um, she uh, was taken to another um, Ursuline uh, convent where they wanted to receive her into their community, but she was she was set on going back to Quebec and the Ursulines, uh, and eventually she got her way uh, and began her postulancy with them on October of 1712. And she took the habit uh, as Esther Marie Joseph de l'Enfant Jésus, Esther Marie Joseph of the Child Jesus, on January 3rd, 1713. When she took her vows, uh, Father Bigot preached a sermon, uh, which we still have, which uh, give, contains what little information we know about her life uh, before entering the convent. And um, even at this point, uh, her parents didn't um, didn't uh, give up on her. Um, in 1714, uh, her parents uh, again sought her return, and uh, in response, she uh, pled with the bishop of Quebec to advance the time of her profession of vows to move it up so she could, she could, so she could remain in uh, Canada. And so, even though uh, contact maintained with her family by nisget, uh, occasional visits from nephew by uh, by nephews from New England, uh, she managed to remain in the convent, where she would for the rest of her life, uh, for the next uh, sixty six years, uh, she would never leave it. And so, this enters the third sort of period of her life. And um, she uh, had a spectacular rise in the convent, if you want to put it that way. She served in many offices. Uh, she appears to have been groomed for positions of authority by the nuns. She was well-liked. Uh, in fact, um, she became, and remains to this day, the only foreign-born mother superior in the history of the Quebec uh, Ursulines. Historians, secular historians like Anne Little, uh, and her descendant, by the way, um, Julie Realwright, wrote a book about her. Uh, both stressed that she would have ha she had opportunities in the convent she would not have had if she'd remained in New England as a, as a wife. She would have been a wife, a mother there, not many other opportunities in the convent. She, again, I will get to the offices that she served in a moment, but she would have you know administrative duties, tasks. She was a teacher. She um, she had you know in a way power uh, again the, the nuns were were important in Quebec, um, and she was uh, deeply respected by her fellow uh, fellow nuns, the nuns and the nuns by the way never lost this sense of identity of her of who she was they referred to her as Esther Anglais or Esther Angoisse, uh, the Eng English Esther, uh, throughout her life and she might probably have been kind of exotic for them this convert from this frigid uh, Puritan religion, Protestant religion. Uh, and so she goes through almost three in her third life, right, from Puritan New England to life of the Wabanakis, whatever that might have been, to uh, life in the convent, in which she distinguished herself um, in a really bad time for the Ursulines, because if you don't know, um, New France was eventually conquered by the British. Uh, if you recall, that there was a war between the British uh, and the French broke out in Europe in 1756 called the Seven Years' War, which in the United States was called the French and Indian War, in which the French and their allies fought the British and their allies in North America, 
And eventually the British uh, captured Quebec and Canada, or what come to call Canada, in 759 and took over. Uh, and in fact, during the war, the Ursulines had actually acted as nurses for British troops stationed in Quebec uh, when Esther had been assistant superior, second highest rank in the uh, convent. And so, come 1760, they're at a, they're at a crossroads, because if you don't know, the British uh, were fairly anti-Catholic. There were laws, lots of laws against the practice of Catholicism in Britain at this point. Uh, it was illegal in many ways to, to, uh, to practice the Catholic faith in Britain. And so, sensing they needed something, that, sensing they needed somebody to negotiate with the, the British, perhaps, the Ursulines elected her superior in December of 1760. And um, this, uh, and she was actually a mother superior twice, uh, from 1760 to 1766, and then again from 1769 to 1772. In a period of, of great transition, um, because she, um, they needed someone who could you know, communicate and bargain with the British authorities who was flexible enough to do this, which she did. Uh, she managed to reestablish with much difficulty uh, the community's affairs back in France. After the war, as you can imagine, war is a disappointing experience. Uh, but she also placed the monastery, the, the convent on financial, uh, firm financial footing by getting the nuns to uh, perfect their skill in making crafts, particularly what's called birch bark embroidery which is a form of embroidery that was apparently native to the, the region, which apparently British uh, colonists particularly liked and were um, uh, sought after uh, and became very highly profitable. And so she was entrepreneurial uh, amidst of all this. Perhaps most importantly, she got permission and got the British government to allow the convent to reopen its novitiate in 1764. Because, uh, of course, if you can't have new novices, you can't have a convent. Uh, and this is, by the way, after a lapse of nine years because of the war, all of a sudden now you have um, you have guaranteed the continued existence of the community, which, if I'm not mistaken, it still does exist in Quebec. Uh, and so, and she directed them up, and you know, for better part of the next that 14 year period, up to the passage of the Quebec Act in 1774. If you don't know what that is, during the midst of the conflict with the uh, with its colonies, the British government. Um, basically granted toleration, that's what the Quebec Act did, was grant essentially religious freedom uh, to its uh, Catholic um, subjects in, uh, in Canada. Uh, they were trying, to, uh, trying basically to sort of use them in the conflict between them and the, the colonists. Uh, the passage of the Quebec Act, by the way, terrified um, colonial New England. It's one of the reasons they started the revolution, actually. Um, they, were, they were horrified by the fact that Catholics were getting their religious, uh, the right to practice the religious faith again in New England. Uh, and so she uh, is responsible, this convert, this, you know, this refugee, really. I mean, it's really what the, the life of the Wabanakis was like. It was kind of an unsettled existence. And um, coming out of that to become this, you know, towering figure within this uh, holy life among the Ursulines. Now, a couple of, there's a lot of questions we have, historians, about Esther's life, mainly because we don't have a lot of direct evidence as to her motives, particularly with entering the convent. Uh, she never left any records. We have plenty of records from the convent, but they very rarely detail, detail. We have letters from her. They very rarely betray her inner thoughts. Now, her historian, Anne Little, thinks that she was probably attracted to the Ursulines because of the situation she was in when she was 12, 13, 
um, that she wanted the security uh, that the convent could provide. Perhaps. Uh, she also makes it sound like, hey, she'd been through all these different experiences, Puritan, you know, Hmong Wabanaki, now Catholic. She sometimes makes it sound like she was trying on an identity. Uh, I think this is a little bit simplistic, but if that's true, apparently she found it. Um, <clears throat> one of the few sort of uh, inklings we get of her, of her inner life, if you will, uh, comes from a letter she wrote in 1747, when her mother actually sent her a letter, sent a letter to her uh, from New England, um, informing her of her father's death, and asking Esther to return. To Massachusetts to be with her. And she wrote back, uh, and she thanked her mother for telling her about her father's death. But instead of um, taking up her offer to return to Massachusetts, she instead asked her mother to come to uh, the convent in uh, Quebec and join her as an Ursuline nun. Uh, and so in the end, she did choose um, the life of a uh, mother superior over the other ones. Uh, even if she had this fascinating life, which you know, fascinates secular historians, she found her identity as uh, as a uh, um, as someone who um, um, <clears throat> um, found the contemplative life in this uh, teaching order um, in her true calling. Uh, and in fact, by the way, you shouldn't feel sad uh, for the wheelwrights. They had eight other children besides her that survived to adulthood. Uh, many of them went on to do well successfully uh, financially in New England, made good for themselves. Uh, but Esther herself never returned to New England, and in fact, she would stay in the in the uh, the convent um, until she was 84 years old. Died in 1780, just as the the American Revolution is coming to an end. Uh, and so you have another example here of in this you know borderland of uh, colonial uh, life in North America, you have the uh, um, the Catholic religious orders providing this sort of uh, physical but also spiritual safe haven for someone who lived this extraordinary life, which uh, unfortunately we can't too, uh, uh, know too much more about, but I think we can, uh, safe to say, uh, that um, um, uh, the Catholic faith uh, gave her that sort of um, uh, uh, spiritual home she probably had been looking for uh, after she was taken uh, from her parents at such a young age. And so there you have it. There is uh, 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 this week's ep this episode of uh, that's it for this episode of uh, Catholic Lives. Be on the lookout for the next one. Hopefully, it won't be too often during the semester, but I'll try to keep uh, keep uh, keep up as much as I can. Uh, please, if you uh, if you liked what you heard, please go to our Facebook page, like us, uh, go to uh, Apple uh, Apple Podcast and like, um, leave a review, leave a comment. That helps me the word about this go to our website which is uh, churchcontroversies.com the schedule new schedule of of uh talks is about to begin for the fall semester it's up there uh yeah please spread the word um hope you all guys have a great whatever week <laughs> next time to all you hear from me uh take care and god bless <laughs>